Hey there, word wizards, and welcome to this episode of Am I Right Podcast. I am your host, Sheridan Sharp, and I'm excited to bring you insights from authors, editors, and agents from around the globe. Because while we write alone, writing doesn't have to be solitary. Am I right? Welcome to Am I Right? Host Sheridan Sharp here again for another episode with debut author Christine McKillum's Whoa. It's not Hi. her first her first time being published, we'll, but we'll get to that. But it's the first time being published with this book. And she has a wonderful portfolio, and she just already brings a really positive and fun energy to the show, and so I think she has a lot to teach us. So, Christine, thank you for taking the time to come on the show, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super yeah, excited. Yeah, it's going to be time. We're going to have a really good conversation. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the audience, because I always feel that it's more genuine, and I won't get mixed up on names and dates, but you have a lot that you have been published, you know, on platforms and fantastic journals. And so if you want to introduce any of that to the audience, go ahead. Yeah, sure. So I'm Christine McKellums. I am a social cultural psychologist by training, and I'm currently a college professor at San Jose State University. But my first love is always writing. And so right now I have a debut novel coming out in April from Atrial called The Band about a canceled K-pop star who essentially goes on the run and ends up hiding in the McMansion of like an Asian American therapist in, in LA and sort of all the the spiraling and, and increasing violent interactions that come about from something like that. But before this novel, you know, I've published a lot obviously in psychology, but also in like news outlets. So I've done a lot of like op-eds. I've written a lot of short stories for lit magazines. So I'm super excited to share about, you know, all the different kinds of things I've sort of been through in in terms of publishing. Mm -hmm. And it is different in many ways and the same in many ways, right? Going across these different platforms and genres. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that. But if this doesn't convince those who are listening that you know what you're talking about, I don't know what would because just getting published onto a journal I feel like is almost more competitive and rare than getting an agent it feels like that a lot of the time because there's you know it's highly competitive and content is a lot smaller and that doesn't mean that it's easier it just means that you have the constraints you know of of the journal and and its preferences and so I wanted to ask with that do you feel like Mm-hmm. getting published in these journals or like you said making articles with previous occupations has that prepared you for publishing a full length manuscript or do you think that's been kind of a separate experience for you you know i thought about that a lot when i was just starting writing like a couple of years ago when i was like what should like what's my overall strategy do you want to like publish in like lit journals and lit magazines and then like newspapers first and then segue into like the full length novel or do you want to just like dive right in And my idea, I don't know if this is necessarily true, because I'm sure there are authors out there who like don't necessarily dabble in magazines or like major news outlets and go straight for the novel. But like my experience was that I feel like lit magazines give, on the one hand, it gives you a little bit of street credibility, like when you're um, approaching agents to say like, Mm -hmm. hey, like, I'm not just toot my own horn here out of nowhere. Like I have all these other places where people have clearly liked my writing and thought it was good enough to publish. So I feel like it gives you, at least when you're getting an agent, maybe when it also when it comes to like selling that novel to a publisher, I'm not sure how much like publishers necessarily like look at your like writing credit history. But I think certainly agents, you know, if you if you have like literary credits to your name, do pay attention, at least for certain genres, right? So 
like I'm like lit fiction slash upmarket. So I feel like in lit, literary fiction in particular, like having lit magazine publications would be important. Like if you were like a romance writer or like a thriller horror writer or some other kind of very genre specific writer where there's not maybe as huge of a lit market magazine, like market for those, it may not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, so I feel like on the, on the, just the, the, like having credibility side, it helps. Um, and then more generally, I think it's good. To, I mean, I'm generally like open to editing and I like editing, like having people edit my work um, and me editing other people's work. So I feel like it's in general, it's like good practice to get used to the fact that people will have opinions about the way you write stuff and want you to change things and just like be okay with it and not be sensitive about it or prickly about it or, you know, like not have a meltdown about like stuff people want to <laughs> You know, because I have like on an editorial side, like I'm just starting to do like editorial for lit magazines too. So I'm part of this like lit magazine uh, collective called like Hodgepodge. I'm also mm-hmm. going to be on identity theory as wow. an editor too. So like from an editorial standpoint, I and, and this is something I just started, but I have noticed, like I did my first editing for Hodgepodge like last month. And I did notice that sometimes as an editor, you give people feedback and they don't, they just ignore it. <laughs> So, and I wonder, not so much for my sake, but I wonder for their sake, like if they want to continue in publishing, like they're, they have to figure that out somehow to like not ignore editorial Mm -hmm. feedback. So yeah, yeah, I feel like if if you're in a position where you're like sensitive about editorial feedback, like having that practice and getting used to it is really helpful with like magazine publications and those kinds of things. That's a great point because I don't think any of us just come marching in here with this baby that we've created with our own blood mm-hmm. and tears and feel like oh yeah go ahead and just slaughter that go ahead you know take the take the one stake to it i don't think anyone naturally likes feeling that way mm-hmm. um, but it is an industry where you kind of have to develop a tougher skin and you and it look oh. at it objectively right look at it as like okay how can i improve this and mm-hmm. i've heard so many people say oh man i am so glad i waited and didn't push my agent to get it out there because the manuscript that it is now versus what it was a year ago or two years ago is so much better. So much better. Mm-hmm. If I went on once, I just let go of my darlings. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good thing for us to remember, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Editorial reviews are not a bad thing and to listen to them, <laughs> right? Listen to your editor. She's telling you from both sides. Yeah. <laughs> and like the other thing that I've sort of learned over the process of like getting editorial feedback is that you don't necessarily have to agree with everything that gets said. But if you disagree with you, you have to come up with a good like rational for why you're disagreeing with it. So like mm-hmm. once in a blue moon, I will run across something that like an agent w- will have said or something an editor suggests where I'm like, I-, I understand your suggestion, but here's the reason I either feel like it wouldn't work or I can't deliver what you're asking for or I have a different idea and I think people are are like fairly good about it too like just because you get feedback doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it exactly the way they suggested there could be like a dialogue or negotiation back and forth between like how the edit looks right so I think that's the other thing like it's not a one-shot kind of thing where they say something and you have to like do it exactly the way Mm -hmm. they suggested like you could go back and forth and that's that's part of the like joy of, you know, finding something that's better than what you created. Mm-hmm. And it's still in your hands to edit it. I, I read an article not that long ago where they talk about from an agent's perspective, he says, it's not an agent's job to tell you this is wrong and here's why and here's how you fix it. It's their job to say this doesn't feel right. And then it's your job 
no, to go mm-hmm. back through and say, why doesn't it feel right? And where did it go wrong? And, mm-hmm. and you fix it. So you still have a lot of creative freedom that way, even if they tell you something's wrong. And usually if they do tell you something's wrong, I mean, they're an, an initial reader. And if you're yeah. very smart agent who's read a lot of manuscripts feels like something is weird there obviously your readers are going to pick up on that vibe too so very yeah true. exactly yeah. one of the other things it reminds me you talking about readers i'm like if you can't handle editorial feedback good luck trying to like give readers feeling <laughs> with the reader feedback because once you're looking <laughs> out there in the real world there's no telling like how readers will respond to it so it's better mm. to get their skin when it's someone in your corner like your <laughs> or your like agent that like yeah. you know once it's out there, like no one's necessarily tied to you as an author, right? Like, especially yeah. if you're starting out. So they will have yeah. all manner of opinions, <laughs> right? And you might as well just get used to it. Mm. And that's why it's important also when searching for an agent. And I know that you kind of, we talked a little bit about this off air, but you've had experiences too with different agencies. You, you have to find that person who can really be in your corner, who can be your champion, right? And so people get so upset because of this agent that they think, would have been perfect for them and maybe they would have been perfect for them because it is luck and chance partially right that's just yeah, how this yeah. industry works but oh they would have been perfect but they said no but maybe because they said no they're not the right business partner for that manuscript oh. so you have to keep moving forward right so that's great yeah, but, absolutely yeah and it's inter- i haven't talked to a lot of people who have had so many publications just in different platforms before they, you know, did their manuscript. And so that's why I asked you about that as I think any writing experience is a good writing experience. But I will say there was a a guest, I think it was our first guest, Josh Allen, who said that he, his agent took a second look at him after he was suggested by a friend who was, you know, who no way in contract with him. And the only reason the agent has said, okay, maybe I'm going to give this a chance is because he had a publication in a scholarly journal online, he wrote a book that's a collection of horror stories for children. Whoa. <laughs> children and like professional yeah. online publication are very different. But can mm-hmm. still give you a boost, right? Because you're, mm-hmm. I think your willingness to go through that editorial process, they see that, you know, and it's important. So just something to note, you know, for those who are listening, but I want to get back to you. So your studies on culture and relationships that's fascinating and i think it's so cool that writing was your first love and yet you have this connection with culture and relationships and i think writers are very observant people we write what we know and what we see so i'm curious you know how often have you pulled in your studies into your writing and is will we see that you know in this manuscript of yours that's being this debut i should say yeah absolutely in fact in this particular book the band i have a quite a number of like footnotes where I actually reference like real studies. So obviously the book is a book of fiction, right? Like it's, yeah. it's all, it's all made up, but like the, the footnotes are very much real things that like I reference like actual studies that I teach on, like in my cultural psychology class or even in my introductory psychology class. So I cite a lot of like famous psych studies and things like that. And so, yeah, absolutely. Like I don't, do it on purpose. Like, it's not like I go through like writing a story and I'm always trying to bring in like actual empirical studies on relationships or culture or like mental health. I do a lot of like talking about mental health in the book too, because the main character is essentially like depressed, but he doesn't know it or he hasn't come to terms with it. So, you know, I cite studies of how even like depression, something like depression can look really different cross-culturally. So unless you know what you're looking at, you might not even realize someone's depressed until like Mm. the study showing that like depression might look one way in the States, right? But if you take, if you go to Korea, if you go to like an Asian cultural context, like depression might actually look 
quite different. It might even look the opposite of what you expect. And so, yeah, I mean, in general, I think the reason I went into psychology, even though writing was my first love, is because I feel like humans are by far and away the most interesting things on the planet. Like, I know everyone has their own thing, right? So I'm not here to say that like black holes aren't interesting or that like, you know, microorganisms are interesting. But I feel like me personally, the thing my writing and my like empirical, you know, research has in common is that in both cases, I'm trying to like better understand and unpack the human condition. And Mm. one way to do it is to do like tightly controlled, you know, lab studies or surveys. And another way to do it is to like tell a story, right. And trying Mm. to figure out and and reveal something about like the human condition, like through Mm. storytelling. And so I feel like they just sort of just naturally combine for me, like all the time. And I don't even have to like think about it, but yeah, definitely a lot of my like research and teaching does inform the kind of writing I do and the kind of commentary I try to make in these stories. Hmm. So, I mean, I imagine, I, I don't know how it would not be great fodder for writing about relationships, right? Um, naturally. And I love that it comes to you naturally because the thought to me of being like, okay, let's study something about the human condition and then going to a blank page. That's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it would be just writer's block forever. But I love that you have the kind of the skill set behind that and the and the knowledge um, to study that. So what would you say to those who are trying, who are, you know, right now working on their debut or their manuscript in the query trenches, and they're trying to make their characterization, particularly the relationships between characters, seem mm-hmm. realistic while also satisfying? Because I feel like if you don't put the tropes in there, sometimes people are upset, right? But I've read a lot of books where you have this lovely main character and then secondary characters that they're with are very like two-dimensional so mm-hmm. you know would you have any advice to those who are kind of looking to to deepen their characters personalities yeah that's a great question especially with the question of tropes and it's funny like I'm I'm going to be I don't use tropes necessarily a lot at least not consciously in my own mm-hmm. writing but I do appreciate tropes as a reader like when I read mm-hmm. a story and I see a trope and I was like oh I see you're using the trope and sometimes it's executed brilliantly. And sometimes I'm like, mm, I don't know if <laughs> I just really buy that trope, like in this particular <laughs> narrative context, but either way, I mean, I think tropes are really important and they're really useful. I mean, one of the things that I tend to do in my own writing, I don't know if it works for everyone. So take this with a grain of salt. And it's funny, like I'm going to Comic-Con next month in, in Seattle and we're doing like a whole panel talking about tropes and like trying to, which trope is better than which trope. So <laughs> I'll probably think about this more after next month when, you know, I debate with other authors about tropes, but just off the top of my head, um, I think the thing that I rely on when it comes to characterization is I pick and choose people in my own life that I feel like these characters are either inspired by or resemble. And I try to like either put myself in their head or like literally go back and think of actual conversations I've had or things they have said or would say to me, or I don't know if people do this, but sometimes like when I'm just daydreaming or when I'm like, like thinking and bored, like I'll have like an imaginary conversation in my head. I'm like, oh, this is what I should have said to them. Or like, oh, I mm-hmm. wonder what would happen if they, like, they said this to me. And I try to use those like real people as launching points for characters, even if the character is not necessarily like supposed to be them in any like actual way, but like if they're inspired, if they're tangentially related. And I find that the the characters I've created in my stories that people resonate the most with are oftentimes based on real people for better or for worse. And it's usually not like a one-to-one ratio. So it's not like 
I take an actual person, I make them do a fictional character. It's usually like, okay, they have this thing in common or they have the voice or they have like a feature of this real person. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's much easier to build from reality that way than to like come up with something like out of the thin air. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, stand-up comedy is my second love. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obviously not a stand-up comic, but I love like, as a consumer, I love consuming stand-up comedy. And I've heard comics say, oh, you too? Um, (laughs) I've heard stand-up comics saying that. Like I think Jerry Seinfeld famously said in one of his like, Maybe it was one of his like comedians in cars or in his book. I can't remember. Where he was like, every time he has a conversation with someone, he's like thinking in the back of his head, like, how can I use this for a bit? Or how can I use this and turn this into like something for his stand-up? And I I'm the same, I'm the same way. Like when I talk with people, if the conversation gets interesting or if they say something like idiosyncratic, then I'm like, huh. I've never heard anyone talk like that before or say something like that before. I always put it in the back of my mind. I was like, okay. Maybe I'll use that later, <laughs> like yeah. a line of dialogue or something. Or uh-huh. like maybe they said something that gave me pause. And I was like, huh, maybe I could build a whole character around that like crazy thing you just said. Um, mm. So I think like mining your own life or like even like eavesdropping, like I've built entire short, st- I've built like one of my short stories around a conversation I eavesdropped at the gym. <laughs> I love that. I love it. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop on purpose. I was literally just working on my laptop, but it was not my fault that these two elderly gentlemen sat down next to me and started having a conversation that very quickly turned scandalous, at least in my mind. And I was like, wait, and I could not believe they were having this conversation. And so I turned it into a short story. And obviously I don't even know who these people are. So it was fine. <laughs> but yeah, just like mining stuff from real life, I feel like could be really fruitful for people who are having trouble with characterization. Mm. I feel like I try to create the ideal character, right? Like this champion for those who are reading. And so my my concern personally, and I know this is a concern that other people have, is giving them enough flaws and enough uh-huh. uh, internal conflict, yes. if not only external, right? Uh-huh. And And so it is great to observe other people. I think we all have our own internal conflict, right? That we can kind of build off of if it's not too fresh. Yeah. uh reason for us to build off of. But has there something that you've just noticed, you know, about humans and and humanity that you wish maybe that, especially as writers, that writers knew more often? Like, is there something that you've observed that maybe from reading other manuscripts and they fall flat for you that you're like, maybe don't do this? Yeah, I think it's funny that you bring it up that you you talk about how it's hard for you to give your heroes flaws. It's funny because I feel like I have the opposite problem where all my characters are anti-heroes. And it's like I had to stop and remind myself. I was like, okay, because I personally like maybe I'm just a dark person, but like think about like my favorite like movies or TV shows, right? Oftentimes my favorite th- those things that I consume, like my favorite ones are the ones where like a lot of the characters are either unlikable or start off, start, start off being unlikable and then turn likable. Like I think mm-hmm. of like you know, The Office, right? Where it's all cringe until you fall in love with all the characters or like Breaking Bad <laughs> or like everyone is sort of terrible or like Sopranos where like everyone mm-hmm. is like psychopathically violent, right? Like right. just all these like, like my favorite things to consume as like a person who likes other people's stories. Like I love antiheroes, right? But I also get the feedback from readers who are like like reading advanced copies of of you know the band who sometimes complain that like well you don't want to be at a point where you're not rooting for anyone like where you just despise people so much or you're so irritated by them that you 
don't care what happens to them because I think mm-hmm. that's a final thing that you bring up, right? It you really want is hero, right? Yeah. But you also give them sufficient flaws to be human. And the thing that like the thing that comes to mind is a stand-up comedy bit that uh, one of my favorite comedians, Josh Johnson, does. It's like I saw it on YouTube, and he said he he was talking about this in the context of close relationships, and he was talking about like how if you're in a relationship. He was like, you people have to realize there's only of those of three things that you might want, you can only get two out of three. And his examples were good person, good job, good dick. He was like, you can only get two out of three. And if you think you're getting three out of three, you are being deceived. You are in for a rude surprise. And I started applying it to my life, like, including to my own relationships and and myself. I'm like, wait, which two out of three am I? <laughs> and I was just like, I think he's right. Like I haven't, I haven't studied this empirically. Maybe there are people in the world who are three out of three. And his, his other argument is like one out of three is not enough. Like one out of three, you're getting shafted. But I think yeah. like as a writer, you should think about the same thing, right? Like if you're creating a hero and they have, they have a heart of gold or they are just like preternaturally talented at this one thing, right? That's fine. And that's good. Like they should have something going for them like that. But what's their like Achilles heel? What's the like fatal flaw, right? What's the, the, of those three things that you might want to give them, what's the one thing that's missing and make sure you draw that out. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the thing that like, we have to make sure that our characters are dimensionalized, like fairly Mm -hmm. early on. Cause then one of the other things sometimes I see is that, that, it doesn't bother me that much because I'm a pretty, I don't want to say I have no standards as a reader, but like, I don't know how to say it. As in, I'll like read everything, like including genres I don't normally read, I don't normally mm-hmm. like, because mm-hmm. I'm just curious what people are writing, right? Like, so I'll read something that's a little too like, that I know is like super commercial and not maybe necessarily my first taste, but mm-hmm. I'm just, curious. I'm like, what are super commercial people writing? And obviously mm-hmm. they have an audience because it's super commercial, right? right. Sometimes I'll see like, and I see this a lot in certain extremely famous authors. I don't want to call anyone out because I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's bad. But like, if I think of like the two most best-selling books that have been released in the last couple of years by female American writers, you can probably guess what they are. And and I and I and I love their writing. I mean, in general, it's not my style, but I, I generally appreciate their writing. One of the things I see is that sometimes this, I don't even know if it's a trope, it's like a strategy where like they'll build a character up, right? And you're rooting for them the whole time. And they don't seem to have major flaws other than the ones that are outside their control, like circumstantial right. flaws, right? right. And at the very end of the book, they reveal the like the Achilles tendon or the, the like heel mm-hmm. or whatever deadly thing mm-hmm. about him. But they don't reveal it until like the last chapter. Right. Uh, okay, that's one way to do it. <laughs> where like, and those are the ones that like elicit the strongest reader reactions, where the readers like are on TikTok, like throwing the book across the room. <laughs> <laughs> I can't she yeah, yeah. I, can't believe, I was reading her the whole time, and then she ended up being, or like he, he <laughs> turned out that way. And I think that's a very interesting strategy. Like, I personally probably wouldn't employ that myself because I don't know. I feel like there's probably more red flags. Like people who are completely taken off guard by a character. I feel like in real life, like if you were to know that person, there'd be more red flags, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my who says like when a person shows you who they are for the first time, you should believe them. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like in real life, like people are probably more likely to give out red flags throughout rather than like having a canon event at the very mm-hmm. end where you suddenly mm-hmm. realize there's this awful person. But I do appreciate that that's a general strategy, right? That if you want to get a major reaction out of a reader, you could if you wanted to, and it's obviously commercially successful, like do that. 
like build a person up and tear them down at the very end to make the reader realize like they weren't as perfect as you thought. And mm-hmm. so like, that's another yeah. strategy. Like if you, if you don't want to mess them up too early on, you can just wait until the very end to do it. Yeah, true. I, I love that you have an open mind to this because I think there's so many different things that readers prefer. If I am watching, if I'm having a tough day and I want to go sit down and watch a Hallmark movie, uh-huh. yes. I know what uh-huh. I'm getting out of the Hallmark movie. I know what's going to probably, I could probably predict what's going to happen right now without watching it, right? <laughs> yeah. But the point is, like, it's the expectation, right? And I think tropes are here for a reason. We all mm-hmm. enjoy tropes. There's certain pr- preferred tropes because yeah. I think humanity, we all seek the same kind of signifiers of belonging and love and you know what I mean and and truth and so that's not necessarily bad thing but I do like how you say too that flaws don't just kind of come out at the end I think I resonate with a character so much more if they're honest with me about their flaws from chapter one and then Mm -hmm. they battle that flaw the whole way through because then I'm looking for that character arc right that push through and so I love that you brought that up I think that's absolutely true can you believe that we've been talking for over 20 minutes already? It's what? It oh goes God. by so fast. Yes. So fast. I say this every time. And so I want to give you time to talk about your upcoming projects. Um I we've kind of covered what I wanted to, you know, kind of talk to you about writing fiction with a nonfiction hook. I do want to mention to those who are listening that this is kind of a little bit of a genre bender. It's kind of a new approach um to the publishing world and so i'm really excited to kind of read about it is there a place that we can find you above all the other places what's the best way that we can kind of connect with christine so yeah you could uh, i have a website that has like links to pretty much everything i do like not only the novel but also the short stories and the like media coverage of like my my research on like culture and close relationships so it's just christine modash kellums.com so just Christine, the way it's normally spelled, and then M-A-K-E-L-L-A-M-S.com. But then I'm also like all over social media. So like I'm on like TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, less so. <laughs> so it's just like mock, it's just my last name, Mock Hellums on Twitter and TikTok. And then Instagram, I created Instagram when I was like too young to know what the hell I was doing. So my Instagram handle is like impossible to remember. It's chopsticks, but spelled incomprehensibly. <laughs> so it's like C-H-O-P-P-S-T-I-X-E. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like every time I, I see my Instagram handle, I'm like horrified. I don't know what I was thinking when I was a teenager and I came up with this Instagram handle. <laughs> it's just too late. How we all though? We all started bad. I have emails that I give people that I still use, and I'm like, oh, that's cringe. Like, that is so I know, right? And I'm just like, oh, it's too much hassle to change it. I don't even know how to change my handle. So it is what it is. To start from scratch, nobody wants to do that. So we'll just muscle through the name. Please. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Once you follow her, you don't have to look it up anymore. She'll just be on your feet. So it's fine. That's true. So yeah, if you could ever find me on manage to remember that and find me on Instagram, I'm there. <laughs> um, Perfect. And we'll yeah, put it in the show notes too. So anyone who's listening can, you know, connect with you through that. We'll have all the links. But Christine, this has been really enlightening. And I have some things to think about with my own characterization and kind mm-hmm. of my own journey as a as an aspiring writer. So thank you for your advice and thank you for, no you know, problem. your partner knowledge and sharing that. I really appreciate it. To those who are listening, you word wizards out there, I hope that this has inspired you the way that it has inspired me and that you take some time this week to really think about your characters and the flaws that they have and the arcs that they have the potential to show. 
and keep writing on. Can you see ways to improve your writing process already? Thanks for joining us on this excellent episode of Am I Right? For more information about the podcast, guests, or upcoming episodes, follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Right on, Word Wizards!